So here we are in the middle of chapter 3 in the book of Genesis. And at this point, Adam and Eve have sinned against the Lord. They have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're ashamed of their sin. And now they're hiding in the trees in the garden from God. It says in verse 9, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now they know good and evil, not just theoretically. Now they know it practically, and they've experienced for themselves the shame of sin and, and all of the shame that comes with it, and they're hiding in the shadows, the, the word says, because they're afraid. Before this, they had only known how God treated those who were doing good, but they realized that God, they knew God enough to know that he needed to deal with evil, that he needed to deal with disobedience, that God could not ignore the trespass that they had committed. And so there they are, sowing fig leaves together, hiding in the bushes from a God that sees everything that they're doing. And then we get these questions from God, and do you see how they're so full of reason? As the Lord inquires, he's provoking Adam to reflect upon what has happened in his mind and in his heart. Who told you that you were naked? That was to make Adam realize that he had entered just a totally different way of living. And now he was Adam realized this. He was looking for evil. Gone were the days of to the pure, all things are pure. Now he was depraved and he had the potential to see perversion at every turn. Before there was just one tree that Adam was to not partake of. And now he's just wary of all sorts of sins. So Adam's more aware. Adam and Eve are more aware. But that awareness is not an advantage to them. It's a detriment. Now they realize we could be pulled into temptation. We're prone to selfishness. So the implication from the Lord is, you know that you're naked because you disobeyed. And you're self-aware of your vulnerability and your depravity. It wasn't that way before you ate of the forbidden fruit. Um, then man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me of the tree and I ate it. So do you see the way that sin is? We've experienced it in our lives. And let's spend a while and just look at one more characteristic of sin that we started off this last Sunday, the first day of the week. Sin seeks to pass the blame. This, this is what it does. First, Adam blames the sin on Eve. He said it's the woman. But notice that he also actually blames the sin on God. He says, this is the woman that you gave me. So he's telling the Lord that you, you've wronged me, God. I mean, think of how serious that is, to take your sin and turn it around and say to God, you set me up to sin. You made it so I had to sin. You left me with no choice. Adam's saying here, I, I, I hope he's talking without thinking, because what he says is pretty terrible, that somehow God is responsible for what he has done. Do you see that in verse 12? 
Have you started to believe that God put you in a place where you have little to no choice, that temptation was so great that even though he did make you with free will, have you become convinced that you're powerless to do the right thing? We see here, verse 12, bad move by Adam. He didn't own up to what he had done. And there's more passing of the blame. But this one is the worst because it blames God, the one who is holy, the one who is perfect. It says, God, you're the reason. It's the woman that you gave me. And the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So her blame is on Satan. And here's the question, was Eve really deceived or is that just something that she said? Well, the word of God gives us the answer. If you want to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, it says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. I love talking about the word of God with you guys, and some of you have said, like, do you think she gave Adam a piece of fruit and he didn't know what tree it was from? Well, the Bible says here that he wasn't tricked. But she was deceived into following what Satan told her about the tree. Do you see the nature of this sin? So the question then becomes, if Eve was deceived, was she still responsible for, for what she did, even though she was tricked? Was she a complete victim of deception? No, she wasn't. She was still responsible. So Satan was certainly wrong for deceiving her. It's not a mystery that Satan is wrong, but I want you to listen to what the Word of God says about deception. Oftentimes, we are not completely ignorant, but we choose that the deception is more pleasant. And isn't that what Eve did? Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16. Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Like, pay attention. Take heed to yourself, otherwise you're going to be tricked. The lie is going to look good to you. What are we told in Galatians 5, 7? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, so also shall he reap. So even though we can be tricked, there's an element where we say along the way, and we're often in the same situation as Eve, that there's a part of the trick that we want to believe. There's a part of, this, of the deception that is delightful to us. And in this case, we realize that the fruit was pleasant, to Eve's eyes, and that she desired to be wise. There was a part of her that wanted to be like God in a way that wasn't the right way to seek to want to be like God. So even though she was tricked, it wasn't, she wasn't completely blind to what she was stepping into. We, many times, are in the same situation. We're drawn away by our own lust and enticed. We're not discerning sometimes we're just going with the flow. We're not asking questions because the resistance to sin is difficult. It's not that we're necessarily completely ignorant. The bread of deceit can be sweet. We learn of that in the Proverbs. So this whole blame game, very common for us today, I'm sad to say. And here's the way it works. If we can convince ourselves and the people around us that somebody else is responsible for our sin because they tempted us, because they put us in a bad situation, then it relieves us of our responsibility before God. And what, is the scripture, what do the scriptures tell us about that? What if I could prove that 
something that I did was 95% somebody else's fault and 5% my fault. Does that justify me in my eyes, it, it, in God's eyes? It does not. But this is the blame that happens so often where we seek, and here it is right at the beginning of the word of God. The Lord doesn't accept that. God did not accept the passing of the blame then, and he doesn't accept it now. Part of this is the sneakiness of sin and that we would own up to. I heard people say, like, I'm going to own my sin. I know what they mean. I don't want to own my sin. I want to keep it. I want to own up to it and say, I'm responsible for this. And I'm not going to be all distracted on who's responsible for what part, but I had a choice. And I fell short and I transgressed. Adam and Eve didn't do that. That's not the way they handled this situation. And they said, it's, it's his fault, it's her fault, even it's your fault, God. That's the nature of what we deal with. Now let's continue in, in this book of beginnings. And what other beginnings are, are brought forward here in the remainder of this chapter? Did you notice any? We have beginning of a lot of things. What do we get from verse 14 on to the end of the chapter? The, the first what? The first mention of, of something. Did you come across any firsts in the remainder of the chapter? There was a snake, and he was probably the first one. But he was also in the last chapter, right? He was slithers on the ground. Tiffany? First prophecy. I like that one. Did you get that answer from your brother, or you came up with that on your own? <laughs> He's laughing. First prophecy. Did you find that when you were studying? Anything else? The curse. And there's a list of curses, but the curse because, because of sin... Any other first suffering, definitely, because of sin. Sin brings forth this. Yeah, it's going to hurt. Yeah. There's foreshadowing of redemption, isn't there? And that's, that's my favorite part of this. There's the prophecy, but there's, there's the plan of God is unfolding before us. This helps us see God's intentions because we have the beginning of judgment. We have the beginning of sacrificial atonement. We have the beginning of prophecy. And I look for those beginnings as, as you do because it tells me about God's intentions and it tells us about God's plan all along and look forward to what is in the rest of the Bible and how it supports and even builds upon and fills in what is here in the book of Genesis. This is really, in many ways, the first presentation of the gospel that is alluded to, it's foreshadowed here in this chapter, and all the elements of God's redemptive plan are, are here being revealed. Now keep in mind, as we read, that God is not just responding to sin. One of the brothers in my discipleship group said that he's, he's reading Genesis, and then he's reading parts of Revelation kind of back and forth, and I was reminded when he said that, that it says in Revelation 13 that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. What does that mean? It means that God isn't just merely reacting to the waywardness and the rebellion of people and coming up with a plan. Oh, how am I going to deal with this? Now they've sinned against me. No, it means that God, the sovereign king of the universe, has all along had a purpose and a plan that he 
knew he would unfold to redeem us to himself. And his ways are unsearchable to us. But we don't merely see God as this powerful player who's reacting and coming to the rescue. No, he purposed this, all of this, before time began. He's not tied up in the time continuum and just reacting to the rebellion. He didn't, he's not just, he didn't cause the fall, but he's not even merely reacting to the fall of man. He all along had the plan. We sang that song on purpose, the, the line in there that says that before even time began, my life was in his hands. Before the beginning of time, it was as good as done. Our existence is somewhat of a nail biter to us, but it's not that way to the Lord. So we've considered Satan's strategy and the slippery slope. Now let's survey the Savior's sovereignty. Look and as it unfolds here or the, the explanation of it unfolds. Verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, capitalized and singular, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So first of all, number one, God's sovereign plan to judge. We'll see a lot of consequences in this chapter, a lot, a lot of different pieces of the curse. God judging sin. Who does he judge first here in 14 and 15? Well, he judges Satan. Satan embodied the serpent, and now the Lord curses the snake, and he says, you're going to slither on your stomach for the rest of your days. And this was an immediate punishment. We often think of the, the sign of, of the rainbow. Here's a sign of that's Satan's destiny. Every time you see that snake slithering down on the ground, look, the Lord put him there. That's a part of the curse, down in the dirt all of the time. But then also in these verses, God pronounces judgment on Satan himself, doesn't he? And he says, the seed of the woman, and I won't explain all this right now, I'll do it in the next point, God willing, but that your head will be crushed. You will bruise the seed of the woman, but you will finally be defeated by him in that prophetic portion. God judging Satan and redeeming us in one fell swoop. And it says in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrows and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. So I know better than to elaborate very much on the pain of childbirth. But it says here in the word that it's painful. And some have contrasted the relative ease that some animals give birth to the, the difficulty of a, a woman giving birth. But that's not really the contrast that we see here in the word of God. It's the original design, that wasn't God's original design for that to be, for there to be that kind of travail, that kind of labor, that kind of terrible pain. When Christian was born afterwards, I was just astonished. I, I, my adult sisters and sister-in-law came into the room and, and I was bawling my eyes out. I'm, I'm a, you know me, I'm a disaster, crying, laughing all at once. And, and I said to all my adult sisters, I know my mom remembers this, and my sister-in-law, never have a baby. 
I just looked at it and I was dead serious. It wasn't a joke. Never have a baby. And all those women today have quite a few children. It was like they, they didn't listen. But it was just, it was astonishing to me how painful it, I don't want to say how painful it was, that I'm overstepping my bounds, how painful it seemed to be to me. It was just like, this is true, right? It's part of the curse from, from the fall. And we get to a second part of the curse. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So we're not going to do a whole study on God's design for marriage, but part of it is Christ-like leadership from the husband, that the husband would lead the home lovingly the same way that Jesus leads us. So marriage was introduced in the last chapter, and now God points out that there will be a struggle in marriage, a struggle for the final say, and that struggle is just as apparent as the travail of childbirth. The design of marriage is not the curse, but the desire to buck the design is part of the curse. That's all I have to say about that. And then I go on to, I taught last Friday on it to all the young people who are not yet married. You should have heard me. I was just off the hook. You know, it was, it was great. They just shake in their heads. Right, but that is God's design. It says here that part of the curse is um, the desire to work against that design. That's going to be a, a part of the flesh um, that we're going to have to deal with. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. As the, as the curse of death, you shall surely die because of his disobedience. So we often focus on the first part of the curse, which is, has to do with the thorns and the thistles, the stickers that we're so familiar with. But here, the real curse is, is death. Sin brings forth death, that you're going to go back into the ground. That was never God's intention to have death come and rule and reign in the way that it has. So first of all, how about this work that is given then to Adam for him to till, for him to toil? Work is not the curse. Just as I've had some people tell me marriage is the curse. That, the Bible doesn't say marriage is the curse. Okay? And it doesn't say that work is the curse. Because during the first week, the Lord worked and on the seventh day, he rested from all the work that he did. So the Lord works. And Adam worked before the fall. He tended the garden. So Adam worked, the Lord worked. And we learn in the scriptures that even after we're in our glorified state, that we're going to continue to work, that we're going to have work to do for the Lord and for his kingdom. So work in and of itself isn't the curse. It is the difficulty and the drudgery of the work. Here, it's not just the leadership, but it's the provision to provide for the family that comes to the husband, that God gives the husband that responsibility. And he tells him, it is going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. Now, you might not deal with thorns and thistles directly, 
but you deal with them in one way or the other. You either deal with them directly or you, by the sweat of your brow, pay somebody else to deal with the thorns and the thistles so that your family can have food, so your family can have provision, shelter, and be protected. So he gives this job to the man, and he says, this is going to be difficult. Before the fall, everything that Adam touched just took off and grew. Now death, destruction, and, and deterioration move in. And we're seeing that the curse is, is laid before Adam here. Then I want you to go forward to verse 24 in your Bible, because really this, this part of God's sovereign plan to judge is the worst part of it all. Because in verse 24, it says, so he drove out. So I can deal with the stickers, Adam says. Maybe Eve would even say there'll be pain in childbirth and I'll have to deal with with my husband. But now they're driven away from the presence of the Lord and the communion that they had with the Lord. How grievous this would have been is just hard for us to even calculate that if you've ever been driven out of anywhere before, pushed out of a house or eject, you know, somebody's property, just like, get off my property or whatever, that God said, you can't be here anymore. He drove them out of the garden. A separation between God Almighty and Adam and Eve, between the man and the woman, the consequences of their sin. Because the Lord is holy, And this great divide between the divine and the depraved. And so they were driven out of the garden. God's sovereign design, God's sovereign plan is to judge. It is a part of his nature. He cannot merely overlook sin and say there's not going to be a consequence. There's not going to be a punishment. He's a God of justice. It's a part of his nature that sometimes we don't want to come to terms with, but it's very clear in his word. Look at how he's laid down these consequences. Look at how he's given forth this judgment. But also here, you'll see his plan to redeem. I want you to notice that, number two. And we saw it in the prophecy of verse 15. The suffering on the cross, that is the bruising of the heel. And his resurrection from the dead is the crushing of Satan's head. I'll read it again. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman is Jesus. How fitting is it that Satan struck with temptation against Eve. And he pulled her in, he deceived her. But then it was the seed of the woman that crushed the head of Satan. What retaliation. Now, Jesus was not the seed of a man, right? Divinely placed in his mother's womb. He was the seed of a woman, it tells us here. And although Satan bruised Jesus' head, when Jesus came to walk this earth, his feet literally touched the dust of this earth. He came and he dwelt among us. He took on flesh. And Satan, in the scope of eternity, we think of the cross, and it is, it's the greatest display of love ever, but to God Almighty, it was a bruising of his heel. And then Jesus smashed Satan's head by coming to life. So do you see sovereign, God's sovereign plan to redeem? Right here, the Lord prophesying directly over his plan to redeem us. 
I consider the garden and, and the innocence that was there before the fall. And then I consider redemption and that it leads to glory. What's better, the garden or glory? What's better, the redemption or remaining in innocence and, and never knowing what it is to be redeemed? Redemption is better, God says. So he takes that which was intended for evil and uses it for a beautiful and wonderful good. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So it, it certainly wasn't good that they had sinned, but it, wasn't good that their, but it was good that their nakedness was covered. So there's an analogy here. There's an object lesson, isn't there? An animal had to die. That's what you said. There's suffering and there's death here in this chapter for the first time to cover Adam and Eve. Sin brings death. And they saw that death right away. The substitutionary sacrifice. I'm reminded of Hebrews 9.12. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no remission of sins. So here we get this truth that there must be a payment, a blood payment for sin to be covered, for sin to be washed away. The Lord is teaching us, and he's teaching Adam and Eve right there, this is the price of sin. I told you that if you were to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you would surely die. And now you're seeing you will one day die, you'll return to the dust, but now you'll see death right here in order to cover your sin and cover your shame. Hebrews 9.12 is speaking of more than just the law. It's speaking of the Lord himself, our once and for all sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of your sin, if you will believe upon his name. All of my sin. Every person who ever comes, Jesus giving his substitutionary sacrifice, covering our sin. And now we're clothed in righteousness. That's where we stand. It's so often, and I got to remind myself, even though I know the Lord's goodness and I know his grace, it's so often that, that I hear it from others, like I'm getting there. I'm working at it. Well, it's good that you're being purified and, and that should be a work of the spirit, but there is no getting to purity. You're either pure because of the blood of Jesus, you've let him cover you, or you're impure because you're trying to cover your, your sin with your own efforts, with your own fig leaves. Whether you've been walking the straight and narrow for a day or for 20 years, we still have sin, and we can't cover it ourselves. We can't deal with it. We can't, for, we can't wash our sins away. And so we have here, I look at the record once again in Revelation, and this is who we are. If you're in Christ Jesus, this is who you are. Revelation 19, 14. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. The saints, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our sovereign God has this redemptive plan, and he has executed it. He's followed through with it. Verse 22 is where we are now. Because the Lord redeems, and he, but he also restores. God's sovereign plan is to restore. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become 
like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. When you read this, did you think, why is God guarding the tree of life? I mean, doesn't he want us to live forever? Couldn't he have just let us eat from the tree? And then he wouldn't have had to worry about the cross? Well, to live forever in this context would have been to live forever in our sins. That's a, that's a pretty bad existence. We're going to get in the next chapter, God willing, on Sunday, and already brothers killing brother. To say, we're going we're gonna to live forever, even though so many people are trying to do that now in this life. To live forever in this life under the destruction of sin, that's not the kind of forever that the Lord has prepared for us. That's, he's prepared another kind of forever for us through, through faith in him. But look, God is putting forth his plan to restore. And the new Jerusalem is better than Eden. Restoration is better than innocence without out salvation. This living in endless sin that would have been produced by eating of the tree of life as opposed to living in the eternity of heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the kind of life he came to give us. So the scriptures teach that the Lord's plan is to restore us to right relationship. Now, this gets mixed up and misunderstood a lot of times. Even when people share the gospel, they often say, well, I told them that the Lord wants to restore you to right relationship with him. But that needs to be explained, doesn't it? Because if a person hasn't believed upon Jesus, they have never been in right relationship with God. You know, we're born in our sins, right? We're not, we're not born saved, we're born depraved. So when we say that the Lord gave his life so that the separation between man and God would no longer be there, and that God, God wants to restore us, we must look at it in the big picture, right? That God originally did not intend to be separate from man. That his original intention in the garden was to have communion with us and fellowship with us and to walk with us. Now, if you say to somebody, he wants to restore you, you got to say, well, that's not the way it was originally. We don't know what it's like before we're saved to walk with God, to have fellowship with him, to hear his voice, to have his spirit dwelling inside of us. But it is true that he gave his life on the cross and defeated death, that he rose from the grave in order for us to be in fellowship with him. So it's to restore the relationship between us and God, between us and, between us and God, you know, mankind and God. So in one sense, we're being restored because we're descendants of Adam and Eve. In another sense, we don't even know what it means to be restored because we've never been right with God before until, until the day that we're saved. We haven't experienced it. It's like saying, won't it be good to be right with God to somebody who's never been right with him? Well, they don't know that. So the scriptures say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Try his kindness. 
believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this relationship that God wants to restore, this fellowship, literally, with him, the cross bridging that great divide, that's the big picture that we get when we stop and we study Genesis. God never intended for this divide to be there, and now he wants to bring us back to the way it was in the garden. And that, this is the fellowship. When a brother and I were talking the week before last, we're talking about the song In the Garden, and it's interesting to think that we have this fellowship with God and that we have the Spirit of God living in us. And even though we can't see him right now, we still have a sweet fellowship with him because of his Holy Spirit to come and live with us. I remind you of 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Tell people, do you want to be new? Do you, do you want a new start? Do you want a, another chance? Jesus even called it to be born again, to have a new life in him. That is the restoration, to come and be near to God. The Bible is a double-edged sword, isn't it? So it is good for us to, to use both sides of the sword and say, the Bible speaks of separation from God because of our sin. But then it also speaks of fellowship with God by grace through faith. Both sides of the sword. There's the separation, and then there's the fellowship. But there's another way the sword can be wielded also, isn't there? And that is life and death. And oftentimes, it's alarming to talk about the truth that we are eternal beings. But the Bible clearly teaches it. When you share the gospel with somebody, talk to them about communion with God. Talk to them about knowing God. But don't fail to tell them that this is not just a matter of this life. It's a matter of eternal life or eternal death. It's a matter of forever with the Lord or forever away from the Lord. We get here the tree of life. And the real tree of life, of course, is the Lord Jesus paving the way for us to live forever with him in fellowship. Lord, I thank you for how you've reached and how you've pursued. I thank you for your, your grace, Lord, poured out in abundance. I see you, God, and, and how you don't wait for us, and I'm so thankful for that, how, how you come for us, Lord, and even as if you give us more days to learn about Cain and Abel, you even came after Cain to help him understand what he did, Lord. You care for us even in our sin, and, and you seek and you, you look for us, Lord, to return to you. I pray, God, that we would, would draw near to you, that we'd accept your invitation to be near to your heart, that we'd step into your, your redemption, that we'd step into the restoration that you have made for us. In your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen.